Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Maria Sherman joins Nate to discuss her book, Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. In this episode, Maria tells Nate how the modern boy band fits into a tradition that goes back to Franz Liszt, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, bands like the Beatles and the Monkees, and how the form was perfected in the 1980s and 1990s by a pair of managers who brought us New Edition, New Kids on the Block, NSYNC, and the Backstreet Boys. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Maria Sherman, the author of Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. Maria, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a treat. I learned a ton from this book. This is kind of outside my comfort zone as, as, as a rockist, and uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed learning more about the, the boy band tradition. I mean, I've been aware of every one of these bands as they've come through, but never really dived deep. So it was a treat. But let's get started with the history of boy bands because mm -hmm. there's quite a long and pretty storied history of this. And you trace it way back. I mean, I know a lot of my listeners are going to say, oh, this started with doo-wop or this started with Motown. This really started with the Beatles or the Monkees. But you take it a considerably further distance back than that. Yeah, um, I it's just a little bit tongue in cheek. <laughs> I'm not I'm not one to shy away from from adding his or some humor into this history because it is supposed to be fun and lighthearted. Um, but I, I begin my boy band history with um, Franz Liszt and the composer, and the reason for that is um, the sort of phenomenon of Listomania uh, that he was such a beloved composer in in the mid 1800s that 
women and I would imagine young women would kind of lose it uh, whenever he performed. Um, and, and the reason I sort of chose, chose to begin there is it seems like a very obvious early example. I had um, uh, an ethnomusicologist friend at NYU turn me on to Alan Walker's um, list book and, and he kind of outlines this image of a young woman uh, catching a piece of cigar, a cigar stump that the composer had smoked and collecting it and, and turning it into a necklace and um, it, it charmed me so much because it seems like a really sort of obsessive uh, behavior that a fangirl would do and um, as, as we'll certainly dive into deeper throughout this conversation that image of the really dedicated enthusiastic uh, young woman fan is really the sort of driving force behind the boy band story so it made sense to to begin there with a very early image of of a young woman expressing their fanaticism in that way and I think that was pretty apt. And List, you know, is right there at the start of commercial music. She music was being published. People were buying tickets to go to the opera. People were buying tickets to see his concertos. The guy was a fiery piano player and, and set hearts aflame. And another factor that comes out, though, is the diminishment of the adulation. I mean, it's called Listomania. It, and it, and there's, there's, a, there's sort of a slanderous element to the descriptions of this kind of adoration from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mania is obviously a, a term we use for a, a state of mental disorder or, um, yeah, I guess disorder. I'm trying to be as delicate as possible, but it, it's written about so indelicately, so might as well begin there. Um, the sort of pathologization of, of young women, like the idea of a fangirl being hysterical as opposed to just being really pure and excited is something that comes across um, even then. And so now we're talking like it's been over 200 years of, of, of the image of, of the young girl being, of, of the fangirl rather, being sort of chastised for her enjoyment of music and how that comes across. And there's a second element in the boy band chemistry. I think you can break it down to two elements. And the first one is the, the reaction of the, fem of the mostly female fans. And the second one is this idea of a group of male singers and harmony. And you trace that back to a different tradition. Yes, yeah, and, and I'm so happy that that comes across clear to you because it really, this book is two histories. It is that the, the image of the fangirl and how she develops throughout the decades, and then when we get uh, groups of young men singing songs, uh, specifically secular songs and um, quartets, that sort of four-part harmony that eventually evolves into the boy band story. Um, that was sort of like a harder tradition to track for me in writing this book, um, mostly because if I were to do any group of young men singing together, we would get into some sort of religious music and I would be going back as far as recorded music would allow. And, and that's a little impossible. And I think people would think that's a little ham-fisted of me. Um, but I, I, I traced it back to the um, to barbershop quartets in the 1930s, because that's when we get men who are also wearing uniformed looks, which is very obviously a boy band trope, um, singing those four-part harmonies. Um, and, and also they're sort of divided, or each boy is recognized, each man, I should say, is, is recognizable about their skills that you'll typically have a lead, a tenor, bass, baritone. Each of them have a defined role within this group that is meant to be seen as a unit, which is, of course, the sort of bread and butter of, of a boy band. Absolutely. And there was one group in particular, I think, that put those two elements together first. I mean, we had a long pop tradition of manias, you know, Rudy Valley in the, in the crooner age, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Johnny Ray. But it was the Beatles who first combined the two things in the modern sense. I mean, but you bring up Frankie Lyman and the teenagers because 
he flirted with it. Which do you count as the first sort of pre-modern boy band? I really, I, I like to use Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers for a few reasons. I think when you like watch videos of them, it's very clearly that this, this feels very proto boy band to me. There's that sort of de facto frontman in, in Lyman and he's 13. He's very young. And the first boy bands were pretty young or many of them were especially black boy bands. They had very young performers, um, the sort of image of innocence and purity through that pop performance. All the songs are very PG. <laughs> it's, it's, I like to call them crush songs, not love songs because they're very innocent in that particular way and also there's something to be said about the time period in the 50s you know um, American teenager is now being an accepted demographic of of um, person they have spending power now um, they're slowly becoming the sort of pop culture tastemakers that we know teenagers to be pop music is such a young person's game and this is when we start to see that really come into the fold but then of course you know I, I should have gone deeper into Bobby Sockers I agree with you and and I do mention Sinatra a bit but you know the issue there is, of course, that's a soloist and, and not a group performance. But um, there's there's certainly a history there, and and there's a fangirls book that came out last year that that dives into that deeper um, by the British journalist Hannah Ewens. That's certainly worth checking out if people are more interested in that history. Um, but I, I like to go Frankie Lyman, and then that gets me into the Beatles in 1960. And the other element, though, is. Motown, where Barry Gordy built a music factory, and this idea of the Svengali behind the scenes who puts the band, the group together, finds the songs, produces it, is very much a staple of this history going up to today. Absolutely, and you'll find if you do if you um, do any research into any interviews with the producers, Bengali impresario types behind boy bands or even their managers, a lot of them will always say that they're trying to create, recreate Motown. I mean, there's so much um, press around Korean pop music now sort of contemporarily as the the current evolution of, of this music and of this idea. Um, well, they'll describe Seoul as some sort of modern Motown. It's really Barry Gordy who creates this foundation where um, producers and, and music minds are realizing that you can sort of take pop music, which is this really creative, lovely endeavor, and mechanize it. You can turn it into that sort of quote-unquote factory system. You can streamline the process and just get the best performers and the best songwriters and produce the best product, essentially. Um, so it really is Motown is the first great boy band factory. <laughs> And I know a lot of my listeners are going to be outraged because a lot of people love Motown, recognize the incredible artist, artistry of the songwriting and sure. the musicians and the singers. But the thing to remember is in the 60s, Motown, other than the Beatles and Bob Dylan and a few people like that, critics tended to deride them and compare them unfavorably with Stax and what they called soul. Motown didn't even get designated soul until retrospectively because it was seen as pop and pop mm -hmm. is always bad in the critical lexicon. But there's one element that I think that and you make it pretty clear that the Beatles really added one thing, which was the really distinctive personalities and the greater balance. Because even in groups mm -hmm. like The Temptations, you would have a, a lead singer and, and a front. And the Beatles were younger, and there was also four of them with really clearly drawn personalities. And, and that idea of archetypes runs through this whole history. Put it in terms of Beatles, kind of the archetypes you talk about in the book. Yeah, it's interesting because the Beatles, clearly all four of them have distinct personalities. And I think even by virtue of the fact that you could name all of the Beatles shows the success in that idea in, in sort of developing those archetypes. However, I, I think when we 
consider them in the modern interpretation. Uh, it, it's developed so much from the Beatles. Like the, the sort of the modern um, iteration of that would be like your heartthrob, your bad boy, all of those designations that feel very like teen pop, teen magazine e, which which of course that they are. Um, I think the Beatles were were allowed to have a little bit more fluidity in that. So um, in in interviews and and in documentaries, you could sort of see the sort of like um, I like to call it like a charming delinquency, the sort of like deviant boyishness. They were pretty funny. They would answer stupid interview questions with a little bit of irony, and and they had a certain playfulness about them that I I think is like kind of quintessentially boy band. Um, even look think considering something like One Direction in the last decade. And the next big step towards perfecting our modern boy band formula was the completely manufactured group. And that comes along with the Monkees because the Beatles put themselves together. Brian Epstein was the great Svengali, you know, George Martin was the studio mastermind, but the Beatles put themselves together. That was not the case with the Monkees or the Bay City Rollers or Menudo and on down. Yeah, um, and and that's fascinating too because you'll also see in boy band history once there is a group that's doing it successfully, immediately there are going to be a million copycat acts, and and typically to less lesser levels of success, but. But the monkeys did this in, in such a way where it was truly just meant to be the sort of parody, the prefab four, if you will, um, sort of mimicked after uh, these two filmmakers, Bob Raffleson and Burt Schneider, watch A Hard Day's Night in 1964, and then create a series to basically mimic this entire existence of this very real thing in a way that can just be in, uh, entertaining for, for a lot of young women. Um, it, it's also interesting to me that the monkeys sort of start on this television show because that too becomes this reoccurring uh, behavior in the boy band story. The idea that you can sort of make up a group on TV and people have access to that. And they like that feeling of accessibility. Absolutely. And we're sh running quick on time for our history segment, but I want to mention a couple of things about the next groups in the, in the chain. And, and the Bay City Rollers um, are a manufactured group they're still playing instruments, but they're manufactured, they're put together by Svengali. And as much as they've been dissed critically, I want to remind everybody that they were the Ramones' favorite band. And pop punk is actually going to come back into this thread in the 2000s. So it's fascinating to me the way these threads come in and out of the stream that we're covering. But And then the next group is really Menuda, the famous Latin American group. And they were highly manufactured. They produced Ricky Martin, but they were replaced at 16 and managed to have a much longer tenure than most of these bands. But that brings us to the band that I think really started it all, and you basically started the book with. And let's hear one of the songs from New Edition. This is New Edition singing Cool It Now. And singing cool it now and again for those who can't get it through their heads this stuff is worthy of respect i mean new addition for a gen xer like myself this is the group that produced bobby brown bell bib DeVoe, um and new addition itself is well worth listening to terry jam uh jimmy jam and terry lewis were not wasting their time with fools and and you know this this is primo 80s pop and a guy named maurice Starr is the svengali behind new addition 
question. Yeah, um, New Edition is, is pretty interesting in, in that they were formed by just performing Motown covers, which kind of speaks to how how easy it is to sort of track this linear history or this chronology of the boy band story. Um, and they kind of got together in the Roxbury Boston Project doing those covers. Um, and they're supposed to be the new edition of, of the Jackson Five. That's where the name comes from. And they're playing these local talent shows, and eventually they get recognized by Marie Starr. He's a local producer. He hasn't had a big hit in a minute, and he notices these boys and decides, I want to do a bubblegum pop band like a Jackson Five. I'm going to put my money behind them, and I'm going to give them the song Candy Girl. And essentially, he sort of takes this group that already existed and, and places them to such great heights they start charting on the um, billboard hot black singles chart they have all these successes they go on a tour and when they come back they realize that the contract they'd signed with him was pathetic and they only make i think it's a dollar 87 it's the sort of behind the music folklore um and and that too becomes the sort of through line in the boy band story the idea that these young kids from either working class or middle class backgrounds kind of get a little bit taken advantage of by a producer by a Bengali who recognizes their talent but also recognizes that they don't have industry know-how and um and and really takes advantage of that Absolutely. And I was remiss in not mentioning the Jackson 5 in my historical thread because they're a key element. That's kind of Motown's boy band 2.0 when they bring in the younger group. And that idea of extreme youth is, is a, tr a factor that runs through this whole modern era of, of boy bands. And Maurice Starr loses the band and new, new Edition goes their own way. And he decides to do it again, but this time with a group of white boys. Yes. Yeah. And that's how we get to New Kids on the Block which I've, I've realized in, in doing this book that a lot of people see New Kids on the Block as maybe the first of the more contemporary boy band history. And I think that's because we get the sort of the white boys um, choreographed dance performing sort of black music. It's very much R&B pop, a la New Edition, a la Jackson 5. But they're able to access a mainstream audience because they're white and, and it becomes more accessible. They can get airplay on top 40 radio as opposed to a black performer doing the same thing, which is always sort of like cast aside to urban radio and, and, and not allowed to sort of occupy those same spaces. Absolutely. And that's one thing I didn't know until this kind of about of research reading your book was that uh, new kids were originally trying to break R&B, but they they went that didn't, never worked. It worked locally. They got over with live black audiences, but they didn't make it on black radio. And then they break it big uh, with right radio. But before we go into our history of the modern boy bands from new kids to um, BTS, which is the history of the book, you make some pretty strong points that, that I would and forgive me if I'm pigeonholing you, but I would put in under the umbrella of optimism, which is a whole new wave of critical theory that started in the 90s with a great book about Celine Dion. I'm forgetting the name of the author. Forgive me. Um, but you've Carl got, Wilson. Yes, Carl Wilson. Carl Wilson. Thank you. And um, which just points out that so much of the snobbery of the rock critic is sort of just like white male adults deciding what we like is good, what, what anything – that other people like is not good. And really that's a pretty silly way to look at music. And if you get to know musicians, that's not how musicians look at music. Musicians listen to music and evaluate based on what they hear, not based on who the audience is. And I wanna read um, a couple of your commentary on this, this phenomenon, this from page 10 of your book, you've got, um, the hater, the boy band hater in your life. This guy sucks, but he's also a product of an environment that tells him boys band, boy bands don't have value. 
So elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, um, it's 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 interesting to, to hear you say that, and that's certainly the idea I want people to get across. But my background was primarily in like hardcore punk metal, sort of really loud, <laughs> violent, very uh, white male-dominated spaces. And then when I started to dive into One Direction specifically about a decade ago, that's when I realized, oh, this is just another underserved musical story that if I don't tell it, somebody else will, and maybe they won't be so delicate, or maybe they'll allow those sort of environmental biases to sort of ruin the story, which I think is really just one of of pure joy of, of pure sort of pop fandom and appreciation um but boy bands exist sort of outside of traditional value structures in in pop music a lot of the time they don't write their own songs um a lot of the time they're not performing instrument uh, performing with instruments on stage though some of them do um but it, that we can touch on that in a little bit um but because they exist sort of directly outside of those value structures are kind of seen as inauthentic or uncool and all these other things and, and i think it's worth sort of taking a breath and, and recognizing that maybe those metrics don't work for every form of music because they certainly don't work in like hip hop or pop in general. And maybe it's worth just sort of interrogating what this music means to people, um, the songwriters behind it, all those other extra musical elements that make it such an like an identity forming device for so many young people and so many young women. Um, and I also think sort of dismissing boy bands as a learned criticism. We see it as frivolous because we see the interest of young women crying and screaming as typically frivolous. Um, and I think that's a really unfortunate conflation with things that are feminine, things that are designed specifically to entertain young women. I, I always use the sort of sports fan example as a comparison because if I see an arena of screaming sports fans, I don't think that they're hysterical. I think that they're enjoying themselves. And the same should be said about a room full of excuse me a stadium full of bts fans or of new kids on the block fans etc absolutely and one thing to keep in mind about soccer hooligans is you don't want to necessarily hang out at the same pub as them after the game and in the same way a screaming stadium full of young women <laughs> is this incredible elemental force i mean if you go all the way back to the beginning of western music you've got the orpheus myth and orpheus comes to a bad end because he doesn't want to sing uh, for for the worshippers of Dionysius, and and they rip him to pieces. So this fear of women screaming in groups and ecstasy is deeply ingrained in Western culture and and possibly in other cultures around the world. And you go a little bit more into some of the other things that push critics' buttons or or boy band haters' buttons, and it's this combination of female power because they're in a group and they're excited with female sexuality and some of the, your, your rhetoric you fangirls fan are described as ceaselessly aroused toxic creatures from the black lagoon instead of pop culture the pop cultural aficionados they actually are and i think that's really really true and there's you know men get a hard time lately and deservedly for being afraid of women's sexuality but women's sexuality is really powerful and really scary to men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I I thought that was all very succinct and I completely agree. Um, it, it's also, I, I think immediately, and I think it's also like a terribly heteronormative reading of this music. And that's probably maybe a conversation for another time that the only reason like young women would be interested in this music is because there's some sort of like sexual revolution happening there and and for many it is it can it can be that um which i think is also a cause for celebration one because female sexuality is given so few places to commune um in, in pop culture or at least in this way and 
two, I think boy bands kind of exist outside of traditional images of what we think of like heartthrobs to be. They're very much not like a magic mic, <laughs> like a six pack muscular kind of guy. They're, they're sort of really soft and, and delicate and sensitive, um, which obviously is something that rock musicians have flirted with since the beginning of time. I mean, or I'm just thinking of like something like David Bowie or like Robert Smith wearing mascara or like even Young Thug wearing a dress recently. Um, there's this like sort of image of like a performative androgyny that is is very integral to the boy band story as well that um, is, is is attractive to young women and I think that's so interesting and, and you could write many books on on the phenomenon. Absolutely, it's boy bands have sort of taken the Brian Jones branch of the tree and ignored the Keith Richards branch of the tree and there's a great little line you have or paragraph. Uh, where you've got a list of things that men think are manly. Beards, big dogs, cars, guns, steaks, fighting football, lumberjack and explosions, leather jacket, whiskey, cigars, man caves, and not asking for directions. I guess you got that from Cosmopolitan, but that's sort of a perfect list of all the things that are not on the list of, of a prime boy band. They certainly are not. Yeah, I, I, I ripped that from Cosmo because I, I struggle to be, I don't want to be so gender essentialist. Obviously, we're talking in, in giant like swoops of, of knowledge and, and history here. Um, but they definitely don't uphold any of those ideals. And a lot of that is because to be attractive to many, many age demographics, and I'm thinking specifically of the youngest uh, um, side of that spectrum, um, these, these boys, these men rather have to come across as non-threatening. They have to come across as gentle um, and the only way to do that is really to avoid the lumberjacking and, and the cigar smoking stuff, with the exception of lists, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And let's hear a little more music. This is New Kids on the Block doing Step by Step. Ooh, baby, gonna get to you, girl. Step by step. One thing where disincluding new addition from the tradition of boy bands, which I'm not accusing you of doing, but I think in the popular consciousness, it really does start with new kids on the block. And I'm not going to call them NKOTB. I was glad when you called them new kids on the block, and I'm sure you did that for length on the cover of the book. But I always hated that when they switched their name. And I have a personal anecdote I got to throw in. When I was in my 20s, my niece was 10 years younger than me, and she was a huge new kids on the block fan. And I bought tickets for us to see them live for her birthday. And by the time they came, she was no longer into them they were called NKOTB <laughs> and we had this pretty awkward concert situation of the two of us kind of watching the crowd react to new kids on the block rather than her reacting to new kids on the block and, and it, it, it always poisoned me against the NKOTB thing and I just think that was a, a total jumping in the shark moment but let's get back to the story so Marie Starr learns his lesson from New Edition, apparently, because I don't recall reading or hearing that he ripped them off, ripped off New Kids to the same degree, and he stayed with them almost to the end and was the songwriter for much of their work. Well, Marie Starr and, and, and New Kids certainly had a tumultuous end, but it was mostly because New Kids started to feel as though 
he wasn't taking them seriously and that he was also trying to sort of take credit for all of their successes. Um, there's like a really great image that I included in my book from a recent um, biography specifically on, on New Kids on the Block where they talk about how Marie Starr started wearing um, like a general's uniform all the time to sort of command that he was in charge. So I think it's kind of like a really delightful detail of, of a truly eccentric man. Um, so eventually new kids on the block do do kind of go their separate ways away from star but then by that point in time they'd been around for a good number of years and, and you sort of see a decline um, I should also add that in the boy band story because they hit so hard and fast and become so popular so quickly typically beginning with something like new kids on the block um, their, their downfall is, is typically a swift um, guys want to start individuating and doing their own solo music or they want to do something a little bit more aggressive they start to reject the boy band identity um and with good reason i think the way that they're written about it says if they're in perpetual childhood like they're peter pan or something and and nobody wants that well maybe not nobody but we'll talk about the perpetual peter pan of boy band history in a moment but first <laughs> here's a word from our sponsor and I was referencing, of course, the infamous Lou Pearlman, who's the Svengali of the next two chapter-worthy books, uh, groups in your in your book. And tell us a little bit about Lou Pearlman and the guy that we called the, or who fancied himself the Peter Pan of the boy band. Yeah, Lou Pearlman is certainly maybe the most infamous player in the boy band story. Um, he's this guy from Queens who grows up outside of LaGuardia Airport. He's really obsessed with blimps for some reason, which I also think is kind of a funny detail. Um, and he quickly starts um, creating these like Ponzi schemes where he's saying he has aircraft. He doesn't when he's in his late twenties, he's like ripping off all these big companies, but eventually he gets this like a, a bunch of planes and a bunch of private jets. It's very odd. And there are a couple of good documentaries about this. If anybody wants details on how, on how that happened. And eventually he charters a private jet for new kids on the block. He gets into some conversations with their managers and recognizes that they make so much money, that boy bands are so lucrative. And, of course, he immediately decides, I can do that. I got all these planes from somewhere. Might as well find a new uh, business to sort of rip people off on and, and, and make millions of dollars. And so he goes to Orlando, Florida, where he has an airplane hangar, and he puts out an ad in the Orlando Sentinel looking for boys to join a new group. Um, and he picks Orlando because it's a lot more accessible than Los Angeles. You have all of that talent coming from Disney World and all the other theme parks that are down there. Um, so it's kind of like the C-list pool. <laughs> You're not in L.A. where they're probably already child stars. Um, and he gets a group of boys together. He has them practice in their hangar, and eventually that becomes the Backstreet Boys. They blow up into enormous size, um, and, and within a few years, he recognizes that it's gotten so big and so massive so quickly that someone else is going to do the same exact thing and try to mimic him, so he creates NSYNC to compete with the Backstreet Boys. There's this really great quote that always gets brought up where he says, where there's Coke, there's Pepsi. Someone was going to do the Pepsi, so I went ahead and did it myself. Um, and it's really just so classically villainous <laughs> to sort of like uh, take these boys and take them kind of from nothing and, and make them the, some of the biggest teen pop stars on the planet and then create their competition. It's so like distrustworthy and, and disloyal, um, but it, is, it makes for a really fascinating pop music story. Absolutely. It's like one guy who's going to be both Brian Epstein and Andrew Lo Goldwyn, the manager of the Rolling Stones. And, and uh as much as you got to knock Perlman for his criminal behavior and some personal behavior, misbehavior that we'll get into towards the end, but 
you got to take your hat off to the guy. I mean, I, I cannot think of another manager this side of Barry Gordy who pulled off anything comparable. And really, until Jackson 5, none of Barry Gordy – well, with the Supremes, obviously, were, were way, way, way big. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I got it. Gordy did it. Gordy did it again and again and again. But otherwise, I mean, almost nobody has done this in music management. And the fact that he put together NSYNC – behind the backs of the Backstreet Boys and cultivated and groomed and trained them for years um, while the Backstreet Boys were were going. It's really pretty incredible achievement for Svengali-dom. Yeah, um, and, and there's this really wonderful detail. I think it's in Lance Bass of NSYNC's memoir where he talks about um, how when, when they were being created, so the Backstreet Boys didn't know on every documentation, NSYNC would just be listed as B5, which is also funny because there is a boy band called B5, but that's unrelated. Um, but just so that there would be like no record of, of this new group coming. And then, of course, when they do, Backstreet Boys are devastated and then think or kind of see them as like, oh, maybe they could mentor us. And, and you know, it's not a reciprocated relationship. And then, of course, in the media, it becomes a sort of like giant rivalry, which is once again, brilliant marketing on Perlman's behalf, where people are kind of forced to pick a side um, and, and maybe a Beatles versus Stones kind of way. Absolutely. And and the timing of this is also perfect because he gets the idea at the peak of new kids on the block mania or whatever they call it and they crash and burn or or fade out and that gives him the time it takes him to assemble the backstreet boys and get them trained up and you know connect them with max martin the legendary uh, european europop producer who wrote and produced their earliest songs and that's another interesting thing about the backstreet boys is they break out in europe first but we'll get we'll circle back to them in a bit but the net effect is that there's a late 90s boy band renaissance that the new kids are kind of pre-grunge grunge kills almost everything in the pop world and grunge fades just in time for promo to come along with the backstreet boys and in sync so that you know by the turn of the millennium they are absolutely kings of pop yeah, and beginning to sell records like have never been seen before. It, it is really interesting to me that Perlman can kind of see what's come before and sort of explode it into such an enormous size. Um, and then there's so much of, of what he created that is, is really kind of what we look to when we think of what boy bands do. Um, we, we think of the image of uh, Backstreet Boys walking down the tarmac in the I Want It That Way music video, we think of boy bands kind of breaking big in, in Europe, as you said, in Germany in particular, before making it over here. Uh, we think about them, or I guess this is more in sync, but like linking up with like a Britney Spears and becoming this sort of like teen pop force where they're truly inescapable. Um, and then, of course, we also think of TRL, where, where MTV's Total Request Live, where they became sort of daily fixtures, um, just kind of furthering their complete ubiquity. Absolutely. And then there's yet another change in era that that the millennium pop era comes to an end and then the next era the next wave of boy bands doesn't take very long to come along in the early 2000s and it's connected to pop punk of all things tell us about the jonas brothers and how they brought pop punk back into this tradition 
Yeah. So when Backstreet Boys and NSYNC call it quits, it kind of aligns completely with the downfall of the music industry in general. Everything becomes digital. You can no longer move two million units in a week. I guess you can now with Korean pop, but that's a conversation for another time. People are kind of exhausted by boy bands. There were so many that were cropping up. There was like a lack of interest. So the only way it was really going to work is if somebody sort of rebranded what a boy band did. We were kind of sick of the dancing and unison R&B pop sort of thing. And in comes the Jonas Brothers and their job as sons of a New Jersey pastor, um, very much related to the Disney Channel, is to perform music that reflects what's happening elsewhere in, in Top 40. This is the time where TRL has kind of moved into the pop punk emo space. So we're interested, young women specifically are interested in like instrumentalist musicians playing that sort of hook heavy palmuted power chord sounds that we all know and love. Um, and, and they're doing it with Disney's backing, meaning that there's also this whole movement of purity rings and abstinence only education that becomes integral to their music. It's very interesting to see how different it was from the Backstreet Boys and Think sort of thing. One, that they're playing pop rock as opposed to like sort of R&B channeling sounds. But two, that they become sort of, they found their own television network to sort of find themselves ingrained in. It's no longer TRL, it's Disney. So we're veering a little bit younger and it's getting a little bit conservative again in the same way that Justin Timberlake and, and Britney Spears were seen as like upholding this sort of like PG virginity narrative in, in this sort of boy band space. But Jonas Brothers are taking it a step further. It's kind of, it's, it seems absurd to me, like how directly the Jonas Brothers become tied with what's happening so, socio and, and politically. Um, sort of off being this sort of like virgin alternative to something like uh, Blink-182 or, you know, when we get to the emo phase, like Fallout Boy and, and, and bands of that ilk. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And I and I slept on this whole era uh, in particular, was busy adulting at the time. And so <laughs> I, I found it pretty I'm, – I'm going back and catching up on the whole uh, – I guess third wave of emo that was that was dominant in that era, and I hadn't realized it was tied in with the boy bands until I read your book. So um, I've really enjoyed listening to the Jonas Brothers and and some of their contemporaries and and getting that clear in my head and, and um, hearing the the echoes of all these traditions. And then the next wave of boy bands, the next boy band you you feature, is One Direction, and they're from England, and they're tied in to reality TV, specifically the Song Contest era show era and Simon Cowell. Yeah, um, like I've mentioned a, a, a couple of times, boy bands and TV kinds go hand in hand, but that's mostly just to make sure that they are everywhere. It's that idea of total ubiquity, either in their country or around the world, ideally around the world, because, you know, they want to make a lot of money. They want to be all around. They want to be everywhere. Um, and One Direction is fascinating because it, historically, Americans have not been open to British boy bands, with the exception of the Beatles, of course, obviously. Um, but in this sort of like contemporary framework, we prefer American boy bands. We just sort of always have. Um, but One Direction come around at a time where we can actually see them form. We see them enter the X Factor UK, which is the reality singing competition that they formed on. We see them enter as soloists. They're not very good singers, but they're adorable. They have this sort of like charm and charisma that's kind of palpable even then um and we see simon cowell who has been made a bunch of successful boy bands in the uk specifically look at them and decide okay these boys need to come together we can train them together they all have a different personality and vocal range and we can make this work um and it's actually that element of 
watching them come together, viewers and fans getting in from day one that is really kind of inseparable from the level of success that they had. Because the only thing a boy band fan wants, or the, I guess the thing that they want the most is that level of access. They want to feel like they have some sort of participatory role in the success and in the story of their boy band. You know, they, they want to feel as close as possible and putting it on TV allows them to do that. I should also add that they came in third and being an underdog in the boy band story is, is such another key element. People love, um, not the best, <laughs> but this idea that they can really kind of get behind a cause because like everyone needs to take this seriously and I'm going to fight for this. Um, I, I was also going to say that the Backstreet Boys went on Star Search and then there was like, and, and they lost and there's a sort of history of, of boy bands going on reality TV and not winning. But then when they leave, everybody wants to rally around them. They want to see them win in a different capacity and, and boy, didn't they? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that goes, New Edition came in second at the talent contest Marie Starr found him at. Yes. And then the final group that you focus on, and we do not have time to cover this in the detail it deserves, is BTS, which is part of the K-pop scene, which is a massive, massively important phenomenon in pop music. Tell us just a little bit about it. Yeah. Oh, God. It's, it's so hard to sort of distill. Um, BTS is fascinating for a variety of reasons. They kind of arrived right when One Direction dissolved. And typically in the boy band story, there's a couple of years before people are ready for another big boy band to sort of take over their life. It's not the case for BTS. And I think there are a variety of reasons for that. And, and one is simply that generations have gotten shorter. Um, so young people, there's a new generation of young people who are going to be obsessed with BTS who weren't obsessed with One Direction. Um, but they take that idea of like using social media and reality TV to the next level. They're constantly accessible. There's a sort of constant content creation and they're always satiating this. They're sort of insatiable, massive global audience. Um, but I, I find them so fascinating and I love to continue to watch their career rise and, and their profile rise because they aren't a white boy band. That's kind of very obvious. And they perform almost entirely in Korean. They just released their first English language single a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's really sort of exciting to see that a younger audience no longer requires anglophonic music to get behind. They're really sort of global. They're curious about other cultures. They're politically progressive. And, and I don't know, I, I just think BTS symbolizes so many great things. I, I think you can tell in my tone. Absolutely. And also perhaps as a harbinger of the decline of the American empire, which is probably a good thing for everybody. But um, let's hear another song and then we'll go back to the infamous Lou Pearlman and, and dive deep on, on Backstreet Boys and in sync. And this is the first Max Martin produced single for the Backstreet Boys. We've got it going on. I'm going to include a little bit of their, of them introducing themselves in a video uh, at a radio station. And then, and then they'll sing the song, We've Got It Going On. Yo, what up? This is the B-Rockster, Brian. Como estas? This is Howie D. Hi, this is Nick. What up, yo? This is AJ. What's up? What's up? This is Kev. Oh, Backstreet Boys, we got it going on. Speaking of which, you just did the video for that song today. Tell us about it.
And that was the Backstreet Boys singing We've Got It Going On, written and produced by Max Martin uh, and some other people on his team. And the reason I included that introduction, and I know you can't hear it, Maria, but you're probably familiar with it, is it's the boys introducing themselves. And my visceral reaction as a dad and a 50-year-old dude was just to really want to punch these kids in the face. <laughs> and, oh, no. The, 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 you know, the, and I just, I, whenever I really dislike something, I always dive back in, and, and now I've become fascinated with it and really like it. And it's totally unfair to want to punch uh, uh, Nick Carter in the face when he was only 13 or something at the time. But that's just the sort of knee-jerk reaction I had because I think there's something, as a guy when you observe other guys drawing the attention of women or engaging in behaviors that you know are going to succeed and drawing the attention of, of women and girls, you really resent that. And I think that's where a lot of the, it's not just misogyny. I mean, misogyny is a big factor in the, in the denigration of boy bands, but I also think there's a visceral sort of, it's just like the way audiences always wanted to beat up Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones and he would taunt them. Uh, and, and there's something to that, but let's talk more about, uh, the 80s and 90s era, the Maurice Starr and Lou Pearlman. And one thing that really fascinated me about Maurice Starr was it's a pretty rare instance of a black entrepreneur in Svengali running mm -hmm. a white band. And talk a little bit about what were the circumstances in Boston that allowed him to find a group of white kids who could do the kind of music he was familiar with and wanted to do. Yeah, um, and, and I'm very happy you pointed that out because um, I try to make it clear early on in the book that though I, I think the sort of the accepted idea of what a boy band is is typically three to five white boys dancing in unison and, and singing sort of these obvious, like, like, I guess hard to diminish the harmonies they can at least sing, we can give them that, um, is, is, is that the, it's totally a white phenomenon. Um, and I think a lot of that actually goes back to, to Perlman, and I'll just touch on this really quickly, where he thinks the etymology of boy band actually came from 1980s in Europe, when German audiences were enamored with, like, a new kids on the block. Um, and by by that point in time, we're already writing the black history out of the boy band story, right, when we get the term. So I think that's kind of indicative of how the story has been viewed. Um, however, I think it was always going to be a sort of black artist who, who takes this and explodes it to enormous size, or at least attempts to, because boy, the boy band phenomenon up to that point in, in the late 70s, I guess 1978, when New Edition Get Together, um, has been black music, Motown being an obvious example of that, or, or Menudo, where you have like a brown boy band. Um, I, I think it makes sense that too, it would be sort of ripped off by a, by a white Bengali type and, and sort of also exploded into enormous size. But um, to kind of go back to New Kids on the Block, um, after New Edition basically gets rid of Starks, they came home and they had that pathetic check and they were like, okay, well, obviously this isn't working. We're performing and working hard and we're not making any money. Um, Murray Star waits two weeks is the folklore and then he decides he's going to try and start finding a white New Edition, uh, which becomes New Kids on the Block. And he's actually able to do this because of something called the Racial Imbalance Act. And this is in Boston in 1965. And it's a law that requires one school with a population of more than 50% of one race to desegregate through busing. And what happens is you now have white kids going to school in black neighborhoods and vice versa. They're really attempting to desegregate through this way. And what happens is all the boys of New Kids on the Block, or at least most of them, end up in Roxbury, which is the very neighborhood that create a new edition so 
it was almost as if they came to him <laughs> in, in, in some capacity. Um, and because there were these white teenagers who were like in black neighborhoods listening to black music, they became familiar with black culture and black songwriters. They became obsessed with Johns and Crew and New Edition and other projects that Murray Star was working on. Um, so it was very much like he got very lucky, essentially. Uh, that's like these kids kind of came to him. Absolutely, and and there's a time and a place, and 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 it's also a famous anecdote of Donnie Wahlberg, the bad boy of New Kids on the Block. For his 13th birthday, gets enough money to buy an album, his first album, and he's, and he's torn between two records, and he's looking at the back of them, and they both say produced by Maurice Starr, and mm-hmm. and he marks that name, and, and a couple, not very long later, he's auditioning for, for Starr, and, but I want to mention, all of this really is happening in the shadow of the massive, massive success of Michael Jackson's Thriller, and for people, I think, of the age group of New Kids and Up, Singing and dancing together is absolutely the definition of pop in the 80s. Michael Jackson rewrites the books. Michael Jackson is the first African-American star that is the biggest. He's not Chuck Berry to a white Elvis. He is it, you know, and his biggest rival is Prince, who's also black. So it's a very interesting period in American racial dynamics and also this era when you know, virtually every white boy in the country was being raised on rock and guitars and and that tradition. Mm -hmm. And the harmony tradition and the dancing tradition had been excluded from rock. And so the new kids were very unique in that they were white kids who were hip to that, to the degree that they were hip. And that's always kind of my thing with new kids is like going back and looking at this, I became a convert to New Edition when uh, Belbib DeVoe hit big with Poison and, mm-hmm. and were part of the New Jack Swing, and I could not ignore that. And, and it was obvious that Bobby Brown was a very talented R&B singer, so I kind of went back and looked at New Edition. But New mm-hmm. Kids, I didn't even realize at the time, even when I saw them live, that they were part of that crew, essentially, or part of that family, because they just came across so white. And this show isn't about aesthetic judgments, but um, they're just not as good as New Edition. <laughs> If I can say that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly an element of that. And, you know, if you if you go through New Kids on the Block interviews, they're very quick to say that, like, we exist because of New Edition. And in many ways, they do, um, not only because that's the music that they were exposed to and, and that's the music that they loved and sort of learned to sing and, and dance to, but just they owe everything to to New Edition, essentially. They were really called the White New Edition. Um, I can't sort of stress that enough. Um, and I really love that point you made about Michael Jackson because it's it's interesting i still think he's sort of like a like a god in in this boy band movement even up to um, k-pop he's really seen as like this is this is what we want to become this is the sort of impact we want to have yeah absolutely and and that brings us to the next part of our story lou perlman and let's hear the second lou perlman band in sync with justin timberlake singing it's going to be me singing it's going to be me and i picked another max martin song i just like max martin i guess um but let's talk about one other element and michael jackson sort of foreshadows this but one knock against boy bands i think is also that there's just an aura 
the society is so obsessed with pedophilia, and obviously it's a terrible thing. But there's this, this suspicion or this assumption that there's got to be, you know, you've got an older man who's passionately interested in working with younger people. And, and because of the Catholic Church scandals and the Boy Scout scandals and everything, we've just come to accept that that's probably happening. And with Lou Perlman, it probably was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now, especially after his death, he died in, I want to say 2016. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Someone will look this up, I'm sure. Uh, it was 2016, yeah, in it, prison. It was yes, in, in prison. Um, and, and since that, there have been like two documentaries made about the guy. Um, and a lot of them involve some of his smaller boy bands because he was always trying to create more even after the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And even after the boy band phenomenon started to end, I'm thinking of groups like O-Town who were created on MTV's Making the Band um, and LFO and all these other groups. Um, they've started to come forward and talk about some really inappropriate behaviors um, that Perlman had. And I think that they felt of course threatened by but also weren't vocal about and it was a sort of accepted um like i don't know secret sort of hidden in plain view where he would give inappropriate massages he would let them stay in his mansion in orlando um there's always, it's always sort of like skirted around the truth but now after his passing more and more boy bands will explain like in, in detail of like sort of the uh, inappropriate behaviors uh, that Perlman had but I, I will say I think with the boy band story in general there's obviously like a long lineage of exploitation but like that's in primarily um, like financial exploitation in the case of Star um, but with Perlman it's really sort of heinous abuses and it's really frustrating as somebody studied this for so many years that all of the details aren't are still not available. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of NDAs and contextual of agreements into why we'll never really know what happened to Nick Carter when he stayed at Pearlman's mansion in Orlando or um, some of these other boys, especially from smaller boy bands who basically just accepted that he might be a sexual predator because he could make them famous or he can make them have a successful career, which feels sort of like horribly classic Hollywood story. Um, yeah, it's really it's really sort of terrible stuff. Yeah, and and this is in many ways this whole series of Let It Roll is just sort of telling the same stories over and over again. There's only about four stories, and uh, Lou Pearlman managed to work in about three of the four elements into his story, and he, and he went to prison for massive, massive financial fraud. I mean, ripping off both um, Backstreet Boys and In Sync, and unlike Maurice Starr, who apparently if not changed his ways, improved his ways and cut the, the new kids in for a bigger slice. Lou just ripped everybody off all the time. And, and it turns out his entire business empire was built on fraud and Ponzi schemes. And he was the biggest uh, Ponzi schemer until Bernie Madoff uh, came along a few years later. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, and I don't want to sully the music with Lou Pearlman. I mean, I think that all music can be sullied. Uh, Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, uh, there's plenty of unsavoriness with Led Zeppelin and, and Iggy Pop and so many of my personal favorites. So I don't want people to get the idea that this is some uniquely sullied genre of music at all, because I've really enjoyed yeah. listening to the music and learning about it and talking to you, Maria Sherman. It's been a delight. The book is Larger Than Life, A History of Boy Bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter 
at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Mark Blake to talk about his book, Is This the Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS, is published by Black Dog and Leventhal. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.